So I need to share something with you right at the start. I am going to be using a new Bible, and the reason is not a great one. Last week, when I was using my large print Bible, I could see the words, but I could not see the numbers of the verses, and it was making me very, very frustrated, and I kept stumbling over the verse numbers, and when I left here, I said, I think that in the church store, there is a super giant print Bible. It's mine. I'm buying it. So you in the back can read the verses, and I should be able to see the verse numbers. My kids had a great time with it yesterday. They would hold it up from across the room. Mom, can you see this? They thought that was great. So anyway, today, new Bible, and hopefully I will be able to see what is on the page. But yes, that's what happens evidently when you have another birthday. So... Let's get started, and as we do, I want us to be thinking about where Paul is on his journey, and I want us to think about the things that have happened that we read about last week when he encountered warning after warning after warning about the danger that he would be facing. And today we are going to walk into that danger with him and we're going to see that much of what he was warned would happen does begin to happen. And there is accusation after accusation and within his heart he could come to a place where he is overwhelmed by the condemnation of those that he loves in Jerusalem and those Roman officials who will put him on trial and and the different times that he will have to defend himself and the gospel. And so our memory verse this week dealt with that thought of condemnation. And I don't know about you, but I am a person who for years and years and years struggled with feelings of condemnation that was very real and present in my life. Um, It was something that kept me back in many ways and hindered me in many ways. And there are times in my life even now that if I'm tired, if I'm overwhelmed, if I'm weak and maybe haven't spent good time in the word, that those condemning thoughts can creep in. I pray that that's not something that you experience, but if it is, my hope for you is that as we go through these passages together today and we see what Jesus has to say to Paul, I pray that you will hear those words and that you will know and experience the truth of the fact that if we know Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. We have an enemy who seeks to accuse us, but we have an intercessor who forever pleads our cause before the Father. What a blessing. I just feel like we need to thank him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that in this moment, we can come to you and we can stand, God, in the righteousness of your Son. I thank you that if Jesus is our Savior, Lord, when you look at us, you see him. You see his righteousness on us. And God, may we continue to remember that even in the moments that our flesh is weak and that we sense that accusation or condemnation. God, I pray that we would rejoice in the fact that we have been forgiven, set free, 
God's standing justified before you because of Jesus. Thank you that it is not by works which we have done, but it is all because of your son. God, may we see that over and over again as we walk through these passages together. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts 22. If you remember last week, Paul was in the temple. He was following the um, instructions of the elders. He was there for the purification ceremony with four other men, and he was accused by some Jewish leadership of having a Gentile in the temple with him. And so he was brought out, and you remember the temple doors were closed behind him. The gates were shut. And so he was taken before the crowd, and there was rioting, and, and they were seeking to do violence, and just all of this craziness that was happening. And so at the end of 21... Let's look at verse 37. It says, as he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. Now, if you just look at that section, Paul is speaking two different languages. He speaks Greek to the commander, and that is the heart language of the commander. And as soon as he hears it, he's listening and paying attention and grants his permission for Paul to speak to the crowd. As Paul begins to address the crowd, he changes and uses Aramaic, which is the heart language of the Jewish people. And as he begins to speak to them, his purpose is to create an atmosphere of understanding that he can relate to them. He knows how they feel, but he wants to take that place, how they feel, what they're thinking, and transition them to the truth. And this is his opportunity. He may be thinking, Everything that everyone warned me about is unfolding right now. And he could have chosen to let that completely overwhelm him and to just look at his plight and think, what might happen next? He could have been frozen in fear, but instead the Holy Spirit allows him and equips him to keep his wits about him and to begin to make this speech and to proclaim Christ to the people that he loves so dearly. Because even though he has suffered at their hands, even though they are hurling accusations at him, these are his people. He loves them. He would give his life for them. This is his opportunity to share the truth with them. And here's how he begins in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. What Paul is saying is, listen, 
I was, I was right where you are. I completely understand how you feel. As a matter of fact, I took it to the next level. I went to seek out those followers of the way. I wanted to destroy them. I wanted to put that teaching away. And the reason was because I'm, I'm from here. I grew up amongst you. I was educated with a great education with one of the leading rabbis. And all of this could have elevated Paul in their eyes, but that's not what he was doing. What he was saying is, I'm coming to you from a place of understanding. And what occurred to me is many times when we want to share the truth of the gospel with someone, we don't take the time to help them see that we have been where they are. We have been there too. At the end of this week, I asked you to work through your testimony, to write out your experience of coming to know Jesus as your Savior. And I think back to when I came to know Jesus, I was six years old. You can't commit too many crimes or do too many horrible things before you're six years old, right? But you sure can have a heart that is capable of committing any sin ever committed when you are apart from Christ. And so when I begin to share the gospel with people, what I have to remember about myself is that I am no better than anyone that I am speaking to. There is nothing in me that elevates me above anyone else. That I am the same as anyone that walks this earth. That apart from Christ, I was capable of committing any sin. And when we realize that about ourselves and we recognize that salvation is nothing of ourselves, it is only of Jesus Christ. When we recognize that and know that and approach someone from that place, it changes the way we present the gospel. Because instead of it being this way to them, it makes it this way. That we come alongside them and we share the truth and the miracle of what Christ has done in our lives and that he is able to do that in theirs as well. So as Paul speaks to these people, although he is elevated on that platform as he's going up the stairs, he is not speaking to them from a place of elevation. He is speaking to them on a heart-to-heart level, saying, I understand. I know where you are. I know how you feel. I get it. But he wants to take them from that place of that hatred and that anger and that desire to destroy. And he wants to lead them straight to Jesus. And so he begins to do just that. In verse six, he says, as I was traveling and approached Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now in that moment, what should have happened in that crowd is they should have immediately recognized that as what they were doing as well. But we're going to see that not many of them heard on a heart level. They were willing to listen, but we'll have to see what they do with the information that they're given. In verse nine, it says, now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Either they saw and they heard something, but they didn't understand. So the message was not given to those that were traveling with Paul. And if you remember from that moment, he was blinded and these men had to help him to make his way into Damascus. 
In verse 10, he recounts, I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Now, if you underline in your Bible, I would underline that last phrase, everything that you have been assigned to do. I want us to just think for a moment. This is the moment of Paul's salvation. He was not saved by Jesus before this moment on the road to Damascus. As a matter of fact, he was going there to commit murder, right? But there was a task already assigned for him by God. We're told by Paul in Scripture that God has appointed good works for us to do. Before the foundation of the world, he has chosen what he will have us to accomplish in his name. And so this just excites me as I read this portion, and I see that God had a plan for Saul, even when Saul had a plan to destroy those who loved Jesus Christ. God was setting this man aside to do a great and a mighty work for his name. And in verse 11, he goes on to recount, since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. This is what God had appointed for Paul to do, and he had been working on this accomplishment for these years as he was traveling from place to place and telling others about Jesus. He was fulfilling this very prophecy that Ananias gave that day. He was going forth and doing the work that God had given him to do. And as he recounts this day of his salvation, he goes on to say that Ananias said to him, and now why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So as Paul called on the name or Saul called on the name of Jesus and as he was baptized and made that profession of faith, he began his ministry that God had called him to. In verse 17, he says, after I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him talking about Jesus, telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in the synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you in prison and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, the reason I think that Paul recounted that last portion there is that he wanted the people to know that his desire was to remain in Jerusalem and to speak the gospel to the people there, that he wanted to stay and he wanted to teach them. He wanted to bring the truth to them. But Jesus said, go. And Paul even made the defense to the Lord, wait, wait, they'll hear me out because they know this is who I used to be. So, so they know that I can relate to them and, and they'll want to hear from me. But Jesus said, go. And so Paul went. 
And that's where he has been all this time, up until this moment that he's standing before them, sharing his testimony. And he comes to the end of this, and he lets them know that he was instructed by Jesus to go to a place that those listening would never want to go. That he was to go to the Gentiles. And as soon as he spoke that word, the people listening became infuriated. In verse 22, it says, they listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. As you were reading that, I wonder if it reminded you of another crowd in Jerusalem who cried out for a man to be wiped out from the face of the earth, who cried out saying that he should not live and They shouted at the top of their lungs, crucify him. And I wonder if Paul in that moment when he heard the shouts of the crowd, I wonder if he could relate and think, I'm standing where Jesus stood. I'm hearing the same thing that Jesus heard. And I I wonder if his heart broke, I'm sure it did, in compassion for those who were crying out for his death. And all Paul wanted to do was to share the truth of Jesus Christ with them. As they worked themselves into a frenzy in verse 23, it says they were yelling and they were flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air. Some of this was a general expression of Hebrew angst and anger and grief, but this was also a preparation to stone him. As they flung their clothes off, Paul would have known what was coming next he would know that they were seeking to stone him and to kill him. In verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. Remember, what's happening with the commander is it's his desire to stop this crowd because his responsibility was to keep peace in Jerusalem. And so at all costs, he wanted this crowd to stop this rioting, to be quiet, to go home. And so he removed Paul from their midst, but he also wanted to know what is the big deal? What is happening here? And so the way that he would interrogate, the way that he would find out is to order him to be beaten to the point of death, hoping that Paul would describe what is happening here. In verse 25, it says that as they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? You can almost imagine that those standing there with the whips held them up in the air because if they struck a Roman citizen, they could face that same punishment. This was a tense moment. When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do? I love that. Not what am I going to do? What are you going to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. There was trouble ahead for those Roman leaders. They could be um, killed. They could be imprisoned. That was a dangerous situation for them. But I want us to look at the providence of God, the hand of God in what was happening here. First of all, just think about 
where Paul was born, how he truly had been given that Roman citizenship. But then think about how he was educated. He was brought to Jerusalem and educated in the highest of the Jewish tradition. And he was admired for that. Then think about how he learned languages, the fact that he could speak to one in Greek and to others in Aramaic, and how God would use all of this as protection for Paul. Would Paul face danger? Yes. Did God have a plan for his life? Yes. Would God protect him? Yes. We see all of that happening. So many times we think in our lives that protection means complete comfort, right? That it means complete removal from a situation that we're in. And at times when we don't see that removal or that comfort happening, we begin to wonder, is God really protecting me? Is he really fulfilling the promises that he has made? What I want us to think about as we watch Paul walk through this is I want us to understand that sometimes God's protection and sometimes God's comfort only comes in the nearness of his presence. That as each of these things unfolded, Paul had to recognize that this was the hand of God. As each of these moments happened, he had to know that God was working And there are moments and times in our lives when the only thing that we can do is to stop and consider God is near. He has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. He is walking through this trial with me. And so as Paul continues on and as we see what happens, evidently that night he was taken into the prison And he was kept there because it says the next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Now, this is an informal gathering of the Sanhedrin, which is about 70 men, and it's going to be plus one because the chief priest is there. They're made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. So these men come together, and they um, speak about matters of Jewish law. Paul had been a part of this. He had been a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So it is almost as if his peers are coming to make judgment on him. But I want us to remember it's right after a time of frenzy and it is informal and so there is still a lot of confusion that is happening and Paul is placed before them there and it's almost as if Paul stops for a moment, puts his heart where it needs to be, gathers his thoughts, looks at his situation and he begins to look around the room straight at the Sanhedrin there in verse 1 of 23. And I don't know if he recognizes some of them by face, but he knows that they would know him. These are his people, and so he begins to address them in a more informal way. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. Paul is not boasting here, but he's saying, as far as I know, I have not broken any of the Jewish laws. This is important to me. I have lived with a good conscience before the Lord, but they did not want to hear this. The high priest in verse 2, Ananias, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Now, in that verse, it should have catapulted your mind back to the Gospels as Jesus stood before the high priest 
and as he was struck as well. And if you remember that moment, Jesus stayed silent. But Paul is not Jesus. He's a man in flesh, and he burst out in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And although we're cheering him on, it was not the right thing for him to do. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? And look at verse 5. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, I don't know why Paul didn't recognize him as the high priest. There's lots of reasons that commentators have pointed out. Maybe it was because they weren't wearing their regalia that they would normally wear in a formal hearing. Maybe um, Paul, since Paul had not seen any of these people for 20 years, you know, as we age, we look a little different. Maybe it's because Paul did have a problem with his eyes. I mean, remember, he had had stones hurled at his head. So any number of reasons could have been why Paul did not recognize him. Some have even suggested that he was being sarcastic. Oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. I kind of doubt that, but it might be okay if he was. As Paul apologizes to these group, this group of men, what he wants them to know is that even in this moment, he wants to follow the law that God has given. And he knows that the law says, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, so he's thinking logically about what's happening in the room, he cries out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, he chose those words carefully and specifically knowing that it would create a stir amongst these men. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees affirm them all. The Pharisees are deeply concerned about the law. They believe that um, there are angels and spirits, and, and that there is bodily resurrection. But the Sadducees believe in none of that. And so this created a deep divide between them. So much so that in verse 9, we see that they too worked themselves into a frenzy. This shouting grew loud. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And this is kind of a humorous moment because there he is being accused by them, but suddenly they're turning and defending him. In verse 10, when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. This is a tough situation for everyone. There's so much anger. There's so much hatred. And if you drill down and try to figure out where is this coming from, it has to be from a place of fear for everyone. Fear that somehow Paul is turning people's hearts away from what man believes is the way that they should act and should live. And fear of losing power, fear of having the authorities come down on them. So much fear taking place here in the midst of this situation. And Paul experiences that and he goes through the next day 
And he had to be concerned as he was bound and and waiting for what might happen next. He had to be thinking again about all of those warnings that had come to him. And I'm sure as a man, he was concerned about what he might face. We've seen him be so very, very strong. And we've admired him that in moments like this, he can share the gospel and he can speak of Jesus and he can push past his physical pain and he can look and care about the hearts of the people who are hurting him. But yet we remember he's just a man. And in his humanity, it seems as if his heart was becoming discouraged. And that fact did not get past our Lord because look at what happened there in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, have courage for you as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Two sentences from the mouth of Jesus changed everything. As Paul may have been doubting his arrival there and what he was doing after not listening and paying attention to those warnings or being stopped by them, Jesus affirmed what Paul had been doing. You've shared your testimony here. And then as he thought about what lies ahead and how dangerous it could possibly be and you know what will happen in the next few hours, will he face death? God assured him, Jesus assured him that there is a plan and that he will make it to Rome. And so as Paul listened to that affirmation from Jesus, his heart had to be encouraged and emboldened to face what was coming next. And when it is morning, the Jews, not satisfied with what has happened so far, they come together in verse 12 and they form a conspiracy and they make a very foolish pledge not to eat or to drink until they have killed Paul. Okay, they're not going to succeed. So what happens to them? Do they starve? No, this is a silly pledge that they're making, right? In verse 14, verse 13, there are more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until you have killed Paul, until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. Now these were religious leaders. I mean, this is, this is hideous. They are plotting deception and murder lies and violence. It sounds so much like what was happening when men were seeking to crucify Jesus. So much like what was happening when men were seeking to do away with Stephen. So much like what happens in our world when the enemy wants to dispel the truth. Deception and murder, lies and violence all against the name of Jesus Christ. And so as this is happening, if we were just reading this and and we put our hand here and 
and we didn't read ahead and we didn't know what was coming next, we could become very concerned for Paul and very worried. I mean, how can he get away from this? How can he get past 40 men who have made this very serious in their minds oath that they're not gonna eat until he is killed and we could become concerned. But if we did that, we would forget that Jesus promised that he would make it to Rome. So God has to do something in order to get Paul out of this situation. And I love what he does. Look next in verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister, we've never heard about Paul having a sister, but he did. And evidently she lived nearby and evidently her son was there and who knows what he was doing. And we could get so trapped in asking all the questions, but we won't. It was Paul's sister. His, her son was there and he heard about their ambush. He came and he entered the barracks and he reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. Just the fact that this young man happened to be in that place at that time and happened to overhear what this plot was is an amazing fact to me. It shows me that no detail has gotten past our Lord. It also reminds me of another time in Jewish history. In the book of Esther, do you remember when Mordecai, Esther's relative, was standing outside the gates or standing inside the gates? I can't remember if he was outside or inside, but he was standing nearby and he began to hear a plot to kill the king. Remember that? And he let them know, and it was written in the book of history. And one night when the king could not sleep, he asked for that book to be read to him. And there within the chronicles, he heard what Mordecai had done. And he asked, has Mordecai ever been commended for this? And he had not. And you know the story from there. It was that moment that God put his man in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And here we are with God doing it again. And so in verse 18, the young man was taken. He was brought to the commander and he told him, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. So the commander took him by the hand very tenderly. He led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? In verse 20, the Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. And so as the plot is revealed, steps are taken to save Paul's life. And as you read through the second half of chapter 23, you see that these are huge steps being taken to save Paul's life. Two centurions are called. They bring 200 soldiers with 70 cavalry, 200 spearmen, and they take them all to Caesarea in the night. They provide horses for Paul and they bring him safely. They're instructed to bring him safely to the governor Felix. And accompanying Paul is a letter written by the commander, Claudius Lysias. And I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about him. But what he says to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. He sets himself up to be the big hero, right? 
Wanting to know the charge that they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that it was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So if we continue reading, we see how they brought Paul out. They took him there to Felix. The letter was read. He asked Paul where he was from. He said he was from the area of Cilicia. And Felix decided that he would give Paul a hearing. And he kept him there under guard in Herod's palace. So as Paul was taken away that night, this would be the last time that he would see the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Paul would spend basically the rest of his life being a prisoner. Commentators say that there was a brief time that he was released only to be arrested again and to be charged by Nero and beheaded. This was a time that Paul would face difficult situations. And as he was locked up in the prison before he left, locked up in those barracks, that was the same place where Peter had been locked away. And what do we know about Peter's imprisonment? We know that Peter was miraculously released. That could have been on Paul's mind because Jesus told him he would make it to Rome. And whether it was or it wasn't, Paul would get to Rome. But it may not be the way that he had desired to go. God had a purpose for him. He had said he would bring him before kings and before governors. And that is what will happen. Paul will face suffering. He will face difficulty. But God will fulfill his promise. And the most important part of all of it is that even in the heartache, even in the struggle, Paul will be emboldened and equipped to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of the promise of Jesus, on that day when Paul is taken from this earth, he was immediately present with the Lord, seeing Jesus face to face. And I do believe, because of what we have seen in the previous weeks and what we have seen this week and what we will see in the coming weeks, I believe Paul heard the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. I pray that you were able to share your testimony at the end of the week's study. I pray that you do have a time before Christ, that you do have a time of understanding who Christ is and of repenting of your sin and accepting Jesus as your Savior. And I pray that you do have a life that has been changed as you have walked with Christ. And I pray that all of us, on the day that we leave this earth for heaven, will see Jesus face to face, and he will say to us, well done good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And then we will get to go in and be with Jesus forever and forever and forever. And there will be time for us to sit with Paul and say, hey, I studied all the details of your life. I can tell you a few things about yourself. And he'll be able to share with us the incredible things that we don't have recorded here. What a blessing we have to look forward to. What a blessing we are given in this moment. Because we are walking through this life in the presence of Christ with the protection of our Father God. And we are empowered by his spirit. Let's pray and thank him for that.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much that even in the difficulty, even in the hardship, even in times, God, when our, our heart wants to condemn us, God, that we know that because of Jesus, we have your protection. Thank you so much that we can see an example of a man who lived with that knowledge, but even needed reassurance from Jesus. Thank you, God, that from your word, he speaks those words of assurance to us. I pray for each person here, Lord, and whatever they face this week, God, I pray that their minds and their hearts would remember and be encouraged, God, that you never leave us nor forsake us, and that we are walking in your presence now, and we will live in your presence forever because of Jesus. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.